Well, Thanksgiving weekend. It's very appropriate, actually, because we're going to be talking about food. I'm sure some of you had some spreads that looked like this. It's a time known for great feasting. Of course, with great feasting comes what? Great leftovers. And a messy refrigerator. I'm sure some of yours probably don't look like that anymore. I'll tell you, though, I found this, and I thought this was amazing. I'm sure some of you created masterpieces much like this. This is called the Ultimate Thanksgiving Club Sandwich. It's incredible. Well, obviously, I'm not Wayne Broderick. My name's A.J. Rinaldi. I am one of the pastors on staff here, uh, and uh, we'll be taking this journey together today, still in 1 Corinthians. And we're going to be talking about one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I absolutely love it. We're going to tackle the whole chapter today. And uh, at issue is food offered to idols, food offered to idols, or as it may have been known, the best restaurant in town. So to clarify what that means, this is actually not connected to the Jewish Old Testament sacrificial system. There might actually be some confusion there, so I want to be sure that I clarify that up front. This has nothing to do with that. We're talking about pagan worship here, all right? This would have been practiced among the Gentiles. This is when an animal was sacrificed. The choice meats from that sacrifice would have either been sold in the market or actually it might have been served in the temple, hence the best restaurant in town. Now, this would have essentially created a bond between the meat itself and the deity to whom it was given. And early Christians could have had a difficult time separating the meal from the idol or from that God, little g. Hence the struggle that Paul was responding to here. Now, we'll talk more about those gods and idols later. But Paul opens this epistle by plainly stating the topic at hand. As we've seen, that is his pattern chapter after chapter. He says, about food offered to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now, intellectual knowledge was a high value to the Corinthians. There is a consistent theme of Paul addressing their practice of placing knowledge over love. This is not only throughout 1 Corinthians, but he's actually addressing it throughout all of his epistles, the primacy of love. But as Paul eloquently illustrates here, love is the greater power, and it is by loving God that we are known by Him. It's a punctuation mark on that point. Now, Con Tom Constable, in his excellent notes on the subject, has this to say. He says, The amount of corrective instruction concerning knowledge in this epistle makes clear that the Corinthian Christians valued knowledge too highly. Paul wrote that the real aim of the faith should not be knowledge, but love. Knowledge without love is incomplete, and by itself will not lead them to correct conduct. So this subject of food sacrifice to idols, as Paul is addressing it, had been considered only with the head here, and not necessarily with the heart or the spirit. Some of the Corinthian believers thought they had this all figured out. 
Now back to the issue at hand of food offered to idols is where Paul gets into the so-called knowledge that some had. He says again about eating food offered to idols then, we know, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. Okay, I'm going to pause here. Many gods, lords, and idols. What's that all about? The way he says it, the way this is phrased, it almost sounds as if Paul is somehow acknowledging the validity of the gods and idols to which sacrifices were being made, right? Kind of sounds that way. All right, so this up here, that's not the Justice League. That's not Nintendo characters. All right, those are the Greek and Roman deities that were the subject of this sacrificial meat, and that's actually a temple there in Corinth. Overlooks, it's a temple of Poseidon. overlooks the ocean. It's beautiful. But uh, how could Paul make it sound so legitimate? And how could some believers struggle with the idea that there could be this lingering connection? You know, we really don't have to study history or stretch our imagination too much to get this point. We can know or intellectually ascend to the fact that these temples aren't for actual gods or lords who have any power over us, yet what's really at stake here is not the cognitive reasoning, it's not what's up here, but it's the emotional attachment that was difficult to leave behind, that emotional maturity. I'm sure none of you can relate to this concept at all, right? We have a lot of modern-day temples that we tend to uh, find ourselves emotionally attached to. And I'm sure that you can kind of understand where Paul's coming from. Uh, I know that I can, because uh, some would say that I have an unhealthy view of this. <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, we're really close to December 14th. Yes, I said the 14th, the day before it comes out, because I'm going in. All right, so in verse 6, Paul lifts up the truth by accentuating the preeminence of Christ. He says, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. Now, there is a parallel chapter in Romans in which Paul's addressing the same issue but to a different audience. And it takes a very similar form to 1 Corinthians 8. And this is chapter 14 in Romans. Now, what's interesting to note here is, obviously this is not an isolated thing. Again, we don't have people going around commonly here in the United States today sacrificing animals to pagan gods. But we do have those little g gods and idols, nevertheless. In that time, this would have been a very prevalent thing, hence the fact that we see Paul addressing this in more than one place. Now, when he's talking about our focus, the preeminence of Christ, and the primacy of the Lord in Romans 14, verses 6 through 8, I'd like to read this, and I'd like for us to read some of it together. So the, the portions there that are in bold and underlined, when I get to that, do me a favor, read that out loud and proud, and let those words sink in. Whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat it, yet he thanks God. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. 
If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Now remember, we're talking about knowledge of the emptiness of false gods and idols and the preeminence of Christ. And yet some Christians were struggling with this idea and still struggle with this idea in their conscience. So in verse 7, Paul says, However, not everyone has this knowledge. In fact, some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food offered to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Why and how is this issue of conscience significant? Robert South was a powerful English preacher in the 17th century, and what he had to say about the effect of guilt on the conscience is pretty strong. He says, guilt upon the conscience, like rust upon iron, both defiles and consumes it, gnawing and creeping into it as that does which at last eats out the very heart and substance of the metal. Conviction is a powerful emotion. It's often overlooked and underappreciated, and yet it can corrode the Christian's fortitude, the metal, to the point of ineffectiveness. It's when it's considered incorrectly. We'll talk a little about, more about that in a moment, our response to that. As Paul states in Romans chapter 14, again, we're going to go back to our parallel chapter here, verses 22 and 23. He says, do you have a conviction? Keep it to yourself before God. The man who does not condemn himself by what he approves is blessed. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because his eating is not from a conviction and everything that is not from a conviction is sin. See, the thing itself, this is important to realize, food or whatever it is, is neutral. The object is not the cause of the sin. It is our innermost feelings, our convictions about that thing. Remember, what we do, we do for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8, Paul says, Food will not make us acceptable to God. We are not inferior if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. And in, again, Romans 14, 14, he says, I know and I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one, it is unclean. All right, so let's say you're a believer who has no problem whatsoever accepting everything is clean. How do we reconcile that with our brothers and sisters who struggle with specific convictions? It's by practicing discernment, discernment with our Christian liberty. In verses 9 through 11, Paul says, But be careful, be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has this knowledge, now what knowledge are we talking about? Remember, it's the knowledge of the preeminence of Christ over and above the emptiness of false gods. So if someone sees you, the one who has that knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? Then the weak person, 
The brother for whom Christ died is ruined by your knowledge. Wow, ruined. What the heck? Well, remember what Robert South had to say about that. I think this helps to elucidate what Paul means by ruined. It eats out the very heart and substance of the metal. The very being of that person is now essentially incapacitated to do that which God has called him or her to do over a simple thing as a double quarter pounder with cheese. Now, fast forward 2,000 years, and it becomes necessary to recognize this issue is relevant to a whole lot more than just meat. And I only put that picture up there because I thought that looked great. It has no point whatsoever, except to make you hungry. This has a point. There's a lot of neutral vices that we have nowadays, aren't there? I'm sure you can recognize some of these on your own there. This is my favorite. Anyway, um, you know, believers have a real good way of looking down upon one another and, and shaming each other without really understanding what's going on. And those who freely make choices sometimes make choices in the wrong place and in the wrong time without understanding what's going on. All right, so what about non-believers who may question Christ followers about their life choices? You've heard it all before, I'm sure. I thought you were a Christian. You drink beer? She vapes. Doesn't she claim to be a Christian? Wait, that guy, the bartender, he's a Christian, really? Hey, I saw her drink a glass of wine at Red Lobster. Oh, my. You mean you're a Christian and you watch anime? You listen to Metallica? You have tattoos? Okay, so when dealing with unbelievers, we haven't got time to talk about that today. So I'm going to show you a commercial. Come to my class. Starting December 10th, we're going to be doing a class called Christmas in the Gospel. And this is a way to help you engage with unbelievers in a way that is confident, clear, consistent, and full of grace about the truth of the gospel, superseding these things that oftentimes we find ourselves being called hypocrites because unbelievers don't really understand the true nature of the gospel and the freedom that we have as a result of the gospel. Okay, commercial over. <clears throat> you can learn more about this in the bulletin and online. Okay, now uh, parents, if you have children with you, you might want to cover their eyes for this next slide. Yes, that's me. Thank you. Yep. Um, okay, so a little bit about, yeah, I had hair. <laughs> Wait, no, you don't understand. That, that's when it was short. It used to go down to like there. True story. So growing up, <clears throat> I play guitar. I still play guitar occasionally. Um, love to teach guitar. But I, uh, I was really into uh, both kinds of music when I was young, heavy and metal. And... Um, <laughs> Played both. I also branched out, though. I did become quite a diversified musician. I played hard rock as well. Um, and so music to me was always, I had a connection with it emotionally. You could say, much like the Corinthians would have had an emotional connection to their God. So along with this connection, though, when I became a believer, I actually understood that this sacred-secular divide that we have is man-made. Music is music is music. Artists are artists. And I can appreciate 
a lot of different kinds of artists. So for me, my conscience is not burdened by the type of music that I listen to or the bands that I appreciate. Now, okay, obviously there is a point at which you have to say, look, something's inappropriate. But I would say that no matter what. Like, there's certain things I would definitely not let my kids listen to. So don't, I don't want to go, we could, we could talk, if you want to talk offline about that, what's appropriate, what's not, I'd be happy to. We haven't got time to get into that today. However, music in general <clears throat> is often misunderstood. And I'm going somewhere with this. I, uh, I recently had the opportunity, a, a blessing my family, knowing my background, the bands that I grew up listening to and were heavily influenced by, there's a particular band that did their very last tour last year, ever, ever, and it was the original lineup. Last year, Black Sabbath did their The End tour. Any Black Sabbath fans here? You can be honest, you're among friends. Okay. So I was blessed enough to have tickets to go see Black Sabbath. Now, <clears throat> a couple of weeks after this concert, um, a very wise brother in Christ, who happens to go to this church, called me up and said, hey, I'd love to get together with you for coffee and talk about some things. I said, okay, it sounds good. So we met for coffee, and we had some great conversation. And in the middle of the conversation, he said, now, there's really, there is something that I need to talk to you about. I said, I... There was a picture on Facebook, and it was, it was a picture of you at the Black Sabbath concert. You were holding up your T-shirt. He said, do you really think that that's appropriate for someone who's a pastor to have this picture out there at a Black Sabbath concert? I said, it's a really good thing my beer was down here and not in the picture. <laughs> um, now, you know what? It's funny because it... What's our natural reaction? Our natural response to that would really probably to be defensive. And, be like, hey, wait. and we had a great conversation, but I'll tell you this. Here's the lesson learned. He was absolutely right. And the, the awareness, it's not that the thing itself, it's not that attending the concert itself, and this may seem contrary. I'm going to talk about this more a little bit in a, in a moment. But we do have to be careful because you do not know who is watching and who is being influenced by the things that we do to perhaps do something themselves for which their conscience is burdened. Romans 14, 15 says this, For if your brother is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. There's a modern-day poet, philosopher, theologian, really cool kid. I love this guy's writing. Um... Chris Jamie, and he said this. He said, It is not that the humble man thinks poorly of himself, nor highly for that matter, but rather he does not think of himself at all. And this is because he is too busy loving something or someone else to do it. For the humility of this kind rears its head as the most love-driven and free, the most spiritual of virtues, whereas its opposite pride, the most self-imprisoning human vice. And I will tell you this, I believe that one of the expressions of pride that we are all guilty of, and I'm, I'm confessing right now that I'm very guilty of, is this, get over it. So if I know that someone has a problem with something, I'm very quick to say, get over it. That's not the right response. That's exactly the opposite 
of what Paul is saying here. Yes, we're free, and we're free to be ourselves, but we're called to a higher understanding of how our actions impact the feelings of others. 12 through 13, wrapping up the chapter, Paul says, Now when you sin like this against the brothers and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother to fall. The sin is not in the act itself. It is in the callousness of inconsideration for the spiritual growth of others. I'm going to say that again. The sin is not in the act itself. It is in the callousness of inconsideration for the spiritual growth of others. Having the knowledge just does not matter. If by that knowledge, we knowingly or unknowingly cause a brother to stumble. So what are we to do in regard to how our actions may affect others? What are we to do? How do we respond to this? I think it's a matter of perspective. I've always loved these paintings. When we talk about perspective, you know, there's, there's several great uh, examples out there. The ones, do you see a woman or a duck or a bunny rabbit? or You know what I'm talking about. You can really get lost in this. Which way are you going? It depends on which way you turn your viewpoint. Now, I want to share an illustration I think is really cool to kind of help emphasize this point about perspective and how we see the others in our lives. So before I do, spoiler alert, if you have not seen the following movies that I am about to reference, I'm sorry, because these are great twisty movies that at the end, the ones where you go, oh, I didn't see that coming, and I'm going to spoil it for you. Now, they're old movies, so I don't really feel that guilty doing it. However, if it's, if when I start talking, if it's a movie that you thought, gee, I might like to see that, and you haven't seen it yet, just plug your ears and go, la, 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 it won't bother me at all, all right? Um, there's this movie called The Others. Has anybody here ever seen The Others? Anybody? Yeah, a few of you? Not many people have that I talk to. It's interesting. I don't know how this one slipped under the radar, because I think it's really good. Uh, and it really makes a great point, too. I, I know it's kind of dark to see. That's Nicole Kidman there. In the movie The Others, Nicole Kidman and her two children live in a country manor in England. And her husband is away at war. It takes place during World War I. And all of these strange things start to occur in the house. And there are these strange servants that are in the house, too, that, that seem to be doing really odd things. And, for example, the children are very photosensitive, very sensitive to light. And so she's, Nicole Kidman is closing the curtains constantly, keeping their rooms very, very dark. And they'll come into the room, and the curtains will be wide open. And she keeps closing, and the curtains keep opening. Things keep moving around the house. Well, at one point, because she keeps closing the curtains, at one point, the curtains just disappear. They're just gone. So she's thinking, holy cow, this house is haunted. They're really concerned, and they don't know what's going on. Well, it's a very similar twist to the ending of, I'm sure this, you've seen this movie. Anybody seen this? Again, The Sixth Sense, right? What's the famous line? I see dead people. Okay. We don't know until the very end. Again, spoiler, if you haven't seen it, la, la, la. Bruce Willis is dead. He's a ghost. Guess what? In the others, Nicole Kidman and her children are the ghosts. 
And all the activity that's going on in the house that's mysterious, it's the people who've moved into the manor. They're the living ones. And you don't learn this till the end of the movie, and it gets, it's like, wow, it really messes. It's like gets your hair standing up on your head because you realize all along the perspective was off. They were the others. And it's really cool in this final scene as the other family is leaving because they couldn't stay any longer. Nicole Kidman and her children are saying, this is our house. This is our house. Romans 14, again, to our parallel passage 3 and 19 through 20, says, One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not criticize one who does, because God has accepted him. So then we must pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong for a man to cause stumbling by what he eats. We are all the others. We are all somebody else's others. And of course, there are a lot of others around us. Paul makes it crystal clear what our response should be to those around us. In Philippians 2, 3 through 8, again, read these bold and underlined portions with me. Paul says, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. And he continues with the why? Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. C.S. Lewis said it this way, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. We're the ones who need to get over it, basically. Now, I love this. Uh, this movement came out a few years ago, about 10 years ago uh, now. The I Am Second, I'm sure if I asked people to raise their hands, probably half of you in here are wearing I Am Second wristbands right now. This was something E3 Partners did with Interstate Battery. Norm Miller kind of, uh, I think this might have been his vision. Wonderful thing. I don't want you for a second to think that I am criticizing or in any way condescending to this movement, okay? So what I'm about to say, I do not want you to take it the wrong way. I think I Am Second is fantastic. I love the videos. If you are someone sitting here right now and you have no idea what I'm talking about, go to the website and start watching some videos. It's pretty cool. And the wristband is a really great way to open the door to being able to share the gospel with someone. If they, Because a lot of people know what that is now. The only thing that I might change a little bit is the, the concept of who is second. It says, I am second. Well, obviously that means Jesus is first. However, if you look, I love this acronym, JOY. When you look at this acronym joy, Jesus is indeed first, but others are next. It's Jesus, then others, then yourself. Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. He said, Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, 
Put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, above all, put on love the perfect bond of unity. Of unity. And that is our theme for this series. All for one, one for all. So may we all wear bracelets on our thoughts and on our intentions that say, I am last. I am last. I'm thinking of the others before me.